0: Good evening, those of you too poor to go out of town for spring break. That was a good one. All right, James chapter 4. Glad to have you here. My name is Justin. Uh, If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here, do most of the preaching. Uh, We have been in James for about nine weeks now, and uh, it's been good, I think. It's been fun from my perspective, at least. Um, lots, of, lots of practical stuff, lots of good stuff. Uh, so let's get right into it. This is kind of an extension from last week's train of thought. So um, if you were here last week, this will make a ton of sense. If you weren't here last week, you'll be lost. You should probably just leave now. Um, James 4, 1. We're going to go 1 through 10. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Okay, so I'm... He leads out right here going, um, I know that you Christians are fighting, you're quarreling. I know, hard to believe that Christians would fight and quarrel. said, in fact, some of you are are desiring after things so bad that that maybe your neighbor has that you're actually murdering um, to get what you want. Now, commentators are split. Some of them think this is an actual murder. Some of them think this is a metaphorical murder. Either way, it's bad. Whether you kill someone really or you kill them metaphorically we're against it, okay? So this, this is a big deal. This is really strong language um, that James is using. And, and really, um, he's addressing one particular implication of something deeper that manifests itself in a bunch of different ways. And we see that um, right at the end of verse 1. So he says, what causes these fights and quarrels? He goes, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? And then at the end of verse 3, or at verse he goes, you ask you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, this word passions in the Greek is the root from which we get our word hedonism, okay? Um, the desire to satisfy the flesh, the desire to just live, live loose and live, do whatever you want to do, right? So what he's saying is your problems are being caused by your hedonistic life okay the passion that is within you this desire and and this word in the greek always every time in the new testament is used negatively okay so he's describing something negative he goes this passion is at war with you there there is a war going on within you so every time you make a choice every time that and again it's manifesting itself with them with fighting and quarreling that's because you're losing that war Okay, so every time we make a decision, every time we speak, every time we do anything, um, it's it's the result of what's what's happening in here, right? We've seen that over and over. James is largely thought to be like the most practical epistle of all of them. And yet what he's done over and over is gone, hey, this is happening, it's because of this. You're doing this sin, it's because of this. You're you're speaking poorly of each other, it's because you've got that in your heart, right? So over and over and over, really practical stuff, but he said a bunch of times, everything that you do is the result of what's here, And then vice versa, what's in here will always come out here. So Jesus said these things like, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks, right? So from what's in here, your mouth talks. Jesus says things like, hey, nobody um, expects, um, say, oranges to come from an apple tree. Nobody expects thorns and thistles to come from a fig tree. What things are, what things produce is a reflection of what they are. So that's been the consistent theme for four chapters now, and and once again, he's going to go at it and go, listen, every decision you make, everything that you do, everything that comes out of your mouth, everything that you do with your hands, your feet, your body, all of that is a reflection of these passions, Okay. He couched it in terms last week of godly wisdom and worldly wisdom, right? The framework, the grid through which we answer questions and define our reality, um, he, he posed in two ways. There's a godly way to go about it, a godly wisdom that gov- can govern our world, and there's a worldly wisdom that can govern our world. But regardless of which one we choose, every decision we make will be governed by these passions that are at war with us. So um, we come across some situation. Let's just say, for instance, um, we wake up in the morning because everybody does wake up in the morning and choose what we're going to wear, right? I'm, I'm not going to bang on what you're wearing exactly. That, that's later, okay? So um, we, we get up and we make a choice, right? I woke up and chose this shirt, these jeans, that those shoes. Um, you, some of you may think that's questionable. Um, my wife thinks I'm good looking. That's all that matters. That's what I keep telling myself. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> When I did that, I made a choice. Now, most of us make choices um, and, and we don't think about it, right? Mo- most of us make choices. In fact, I would say 95% of the choices that we make in any given day, and there are tens of thousands of them every day, that 95% of them um, have already been made. Right? They, are, they are the result of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, some of you a 1,000 years of, of decisions that you've made, things that you've chosen to believe, ideas that you think are valuable, things that you think are important, your, your priority list, you, you have all this. And so when you come and make a choice like, hey, what am I gonna eat? You don't deconstruct everything you know about food and learn it all and go, I'll take the hamburger, right? Like, because if you did, you wouldn't take the hamburger, right? You go, oh, I don't want to die, right? So um, we, what we do is we say, well, these things are important to me, right? Like I want, it tastes good, and I'll take the hamburger, right? That's about all we think about, really. So um, we, we have this kind of vast reservoir of ideas and things that we've decided are true in our life, and most of our decisions we make pretty quick, right? I mean, this is just, this is just reality, Most of our decisions, we don't really labor over and really think through and really process. They just come as a result of our experience, right? Okay, so what James is saying is truly, what's underneath at at a heart level, what's underneath all of these decisions is fundamental decisions that we make. We we decide each and every time, um, we decide, uh, am I going to follow God? Am I gonna believe that God's way is the best way? Or am I gonna follow the world? And am I gonna believe that the world's way are the best way. So these, these passions drive our decisions. Now, we make tens of thousands of decisions every day. We make the same ones over and over and over, right? Sometimes we 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 differentiate what our answers are, but we answer a lot of the same questions over and over. Sometimes we just have to answer them once. And that kind of governs what we think about the rest. So I wrote down like 20 of them, 20 questions that we have to answer. um, And many of you already have. And then this is just 20 of of millions of questions that over our lifetime we answered. But um, these are questions like, what movies can I watch? Right, Ethical questions, what movies can I watch? Can I watch rated R movies? What if I fast forward the sex scenes? What TV shows can I watch or not watch? Should I listen to music that cusses? Should I listen to music that is abusive to women? Should I listen to secular music at all? Should I only listen to Stephen Curtis Chapman? No. Okay? It's the only one I'm gonna give you, no. Is it okay to play video games where the aim is murder, destruction, or robbery? How much money should a Christian make? Can I buy a nice home? Can I buy a boat, a second car, a third car? How much money should I spend on vacations and other luxuries? What kinds of clothes can I wear? Can I read fashion magazines and seek to emulate those styles? How short is too short? How low is too low? How much skin is too much skin? What about earrings, nose rings, eyebrow rings, tongue rings, and whatever other rings that man can conceive of? How should I talk? Is it okay to joke around and be sarcastic? yes (laughs) what about cussing isn't that just a social construct when I'm at work is it okay to bend the truth a bit to get a better price from a vendor in negotiations do I have to tell the whole truth and on 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 we have to answer those questions Right, And as Christians, we are in a battle, in a war, so that when every one of those questions comes across our path, and the millions of others that do, we make a choice to go, okay, am I going to believe what God says about this, or am I going to believe what the world says about this? And at that moment of decision, there is a war. As we grow in grace, as we grow closer to God, we should be winning that war more often than we're losing it. But we have to acknowledge that there is a war. Now, this is specifically for those who follow Christ. For those of you who are here and not in Christ, there, there really isn't that war, right? The, the 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 answers are pretty easy what do i want to do what, what feels good what's going to make me happy what what i mean there's not the big overarching gospel ethic kind of ideas that help us govern these things so we come to these questions and go what movies can i watch whatever one i want can i watch R-rated movies yeah whatever one i want what if i fast forward the sex scenes what if i slow-mo the sex scenes right like like there's these questions have already been answered, right? And, and, and we don't wrestle, those of you who are outside of Christ, we don't wrestle because there's not that overarching ethic um, that we have to run through as a grid, right? And so we just make decision, make decision, make decision, make decision. So let me, let me just warn you, those of you who are here and you're not believers, God is drawing you to himself and, and, and he's winning. You're here, right? So um, he, he is drawing you to himself, but let me warn you of this. When you become a Christian, if you become a Christian, your life will get more complicated because all of those answers that you've acquired over your lifetime now have to be thrown out the window, and you have to re-answer all those questions in light of the gospel. It becomes way more complicated at that point. It's not so easy an answer as, well, what do I want to do, right? I feel like doing that. We go, okay, that's what I want. Is that what's best? Is that what's most ultimate? Is that what's most glorifying to God and most satisfying to my soul? There's a a different grid. Okay, most of us, in light of the fact that we really like to think of ourselves, our culture as an intellectual, well-read, well-thought-out, really just kind of thoughtful, perceptive culture, most of us just swallow whole what the majority of our culture thinks. Right, we, we go to the store, and we go grocery shop, and we get in the checkout line, and there's magazines all around us that just tell us what we should think. And most of us just go, oh, five ways to a better body. That must be Cosmo says, right? Vogue tells me six ways for a better sex life. Oh, okay. Rachel McAdams has some helpful hints for my sex life. That must be good. Um, and uh, Lady Gaga is telling me, well, I, wouldn't, I shouldn't really listen to anything, she says. And... and <laughs> And, and yet we, we tend to govern our lives, that big 95% pool is largely informed by things that we never double check for facts. And so we end up going, oh, okay, well, my marriage, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn from Cosmo, and, and some sex stuff I'm going to learn from Vogue, and, some, and my geopolitical ideas I'm going to learn from Sean Penn, like, what does he have to say about anything? And, um, and we just, we just kind of go, oh, okay, well, that's what everybody thinks, all right, that, that just must be right. We like to fancy ourselves thoughtful intellectuals, and yet we largely don't think for ourselves. We don't really process things all that much. We just kind of go, oh, well, this is what my group of friends thinks, so that must be true. Or this is what the bulk of America thinks, so this must be true. And we just kind of go along with the tide instead of stopping and go, wait, is that right? Is that true? Is there actual science to back that up? Or is it just somebody kind of saying something? With the mass proliferation of media anymore, people can just say whatever they want to say. And unless you actually go back and go, hey, was there actually a peer-reviewed journal, like, study that showed that that was true or is that just um somebody's opinion okay so um we like to think of ourselves as thoughtful but we largely just swallow whole whatever whatever kind of goods were sold okay so what this results for us as believers um, is, a, is a church filled with people who um, question after question after question go, okay, on this one, am I going to go with God or am I going to go with the world, which we learned last week is just a construct from Satan. So we're going, am I going to go with God on this one or go, am I going to go on Satan? So we go, okay, well, um, how should I dress? Well, I'll go with God on this one. Well, um, what about politics? Well, that seems closer to Satan, so we'll go with that one on that one. Um, or what, about, what about the food I eat? Oh, I'll go with God. Uh, what about sex? Well, Satan seems There's more experience there. So, uh, you know, and so we kind of just kind of go back and forth. And and, and so what we create, what we create is this massive gray area in the middle where we're not fully with God and we're not fully with Satan. We've created um, this massive middle ground, this gray area that I will say clearly does not exist in scripture. We've created a third category that does not exist in the mind of God. For God, it's we're going to follow God, worship God, our hearts will be inclined towards God, or we will follow the world, we will listen to the world, obey the world, our hearts will be inclined towards the world. And yet we kind of straddle the fence and create this kind of murky middle place where largely Christianity is indiscernible from secular life. Um, Charles Spurgeon uh, said this. He's one of those old dead white guys I like. Um, He said, I believe that one reason the church of God at this present moment has so little influence on the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Um, Keep in mind that he wrote that 150 years ago when the church still had a significant voice in the culture. I'm pretty sure that if he were here today, his head would explode. He says, put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history, and I will find a little marginal note reading thus. In this age, men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Never were there good times when the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another. The more the church is distinct from the world in her acts and in her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ and the more potent is her witness against sin. So he goes, listen, any time that the church actually had influence, actually was able to speak into the world and change things to actually affect culture um, was when you could line up a hundred people and pretty quickly after seeing a little bit of their lives go Christian, Christian, not, not, definitely not, Christian, 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 probably Christian. And when with a pretty high level of accuracy, be able to see the difference between them. Okay. He, he says every time you saw massive revival, change, growth, influence in the church over the culture, it's when you saw a significant separation between the world and the church. Um, Many historians have looked back on the early church, the explosion of the early church, um, and and studied why this happened. So from Christian historians to secular historians, um, one in particular, a guy named Rodney Stark, wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He's a a secular, non-believing historian, and he looks at these first 300 years of church history um, from when Christ ascended into heaven, and there were maybe a couple hundred people, to a couple of moments later when there's about 20 people in the upper room when Pentecost comes, and we go 20 people 300 years later, which in the course of human history is not that long, um, from, from for Christianity being 20 people to being the dominant world religion, the most influential faith in the world. 300 years, how'd that happen? So there's all kinds of ideas posited about what what was the effect of that. But um, Tim Keller kind of sums up in in three things. He says there was three three ways um, that the early church was different than the culture. And these three ways, and and this is as a result of literally reading um, ancient Roman uh, uh, letters written between officials. Um, where they say things like, um, these, these pagans, they would call Christians pagans, ironically, because they didn't, they didn't worship Roman gods. They say these pagans take care of their poor so much better than us, they shame us. In fact, they take care of our poor better than we take care of our poor. This is Roman officials writing back and forth in the first 100 years, 200 years of, of church history. So A.D. 20 to A.D. 200. Keller boils it down to three things. Integrity, chastity, generosity. That the church did those three things differently than the world and did them differently enough um, to make a marked difference um, so that people could see it, see, people could recognize it, and people thought it was winsome. So they did business different. They had integrity when it came to business. They made good products. They sold them at a fair price. They didn't manipulate their customers. They were um, honest with their vendors and their traders. They, they just did business with integrity, which was not common in that culture. Second, they did sex differently. They believed that sex was meant to be a beautiful thing, a gift from God, a massive holy, divine blessing to be experienced by a husband and wife in the context of marriage. That husbands weren't to run around on their wives and have mistresses. Neither were wives to do that either. They did sex differently enough than these pagan Roman and Greek cultures where there was rampant harems and a multiplicity of lovers, and that was just commonplace there were temple prostitutes where you would go in to certain temples to worship a god and part of that worship um, was having sex with these temple prostitutes that was rampant and christians said that's not right and so we're not going to do it we do it differently we do it the way god designed it to be done third thing they did money different they were generous In fact, um, it it goes back to these Roman officials writing back and forth going, they give away their time, they give away their money, they work hard, they make money, but then they're generous with one another. When somebody in their their clan, in their church, falls on hard times, they rally and give them stuff to care for them, to provide for them. They're doing it for our poor. In fact, um, many Roman social programs were started Um, kind of welfare type programs were started in response to the fact that the church was shaming the Roman government because they were taking care of their poor better than the government was. And there's literally letters, you can read them, and letters going, hey, we got to start these programs because um, the pagans are making us look bad and all of our people are going to believe in this Christianity thing because they are actually loving our people better than we are. In the early church had massive influence, massive growth, shaped an entire empire. So what happens when cultures mingle? What happens when there is no discernible difference between Christians and non-Christians? We lose the right to speak into the culture because there's not enough of a difference to go, listen, we're doing it this way, you're doing it that way. Look at the destruction your way reaps. Look at the blessing our way reaps. You should do it our way. When they are mingled together as they are today, we are left with nothing to say. We're left with nothing to say. We offer no viable alternative. We often throw stones and point and go, hey, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And they go, okay, well, show us what's right. Well, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. We don't actually live out any alternative, anything hopeful. We speak negatively without offering any positive vision for the future the early church did and there was massive influence massive growth okay so um, james goes these passions they they drive everything they drive every decision every moment everything you say everything every relationship you have these passions drive it. you can choose to follow god you can choose to follow this world okay now in these next two sections, he's going to point out first what exactly is going on here, kind of at a at a cosmic level, um, and then third, what what we should do about it. Before we get there, I want us to turn to First John, chapter two. In my Bible, it's like five pages, so just roll over to First John. Chapter two. So what's amazing about these two passages is even though they're different authors, different times, um, they, they mirror each other structurally and, and what they're saying almost perfectly, um, and they kind of they hit it a little bit different. So I think it's good. So we're going to go back and forth between these, so keep your finger in both. Um, John says in 1 John 2.15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Very simple. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, um, what we know from a a lengthy study of 1 John that we did a couple years back, we know that when John says the world, he doesn't mean the people in the world, right? Um, Some of us use this as an excuse to hate or dislike the people in the world, okay? You're, You're not being a Christian, you're being a jerk, Okay, so, so don't, don't use that as your opportunity to just hate people, all right? So he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. So the social constructs, the, the ideas, the values, the ethics, the future, the vision, the power structures, everything that this world represents, he goes, don't love it. Now, what, what I want to point out before we keep moving real quick is, um, even though they're talking about really practical things, both James and John have now said, this, these actions, a result of here. John doesn't say, don't follow the world. He doesn't say, don't mimic the world. Doesn't say, make, don't make decisions like the world. He goes, don't love the world. Because those decisions, the mimicking, the actions are all a result of what you love. Okay? Back to James 4. James 4.4. 4. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, flip back to 1 John 2, the the end of verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, listen up. James and John both use very strong language here, language consistent with the Old Testament. So um, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel, who were God's chosen people, when they would stray from God and worship other gods, Babylonian gods, Assyrian gods, Canaanite gods, Girgashite gods, when they would, when they would worship these other gods, God would come to them through the prophets and say, you adulterous people. You whores, you wayward women. These, these words carry as much strength today as they did 5,000 years ago. And what God is saying what in, throughout the Old Testament, what James is saying, what John is saying is, listen, when we sin, when we have this moment of decision and we choose the way of the world instead of the way of God, we commit adultery against our God. Our hearts, again, we've gotten back to love and desire and passion, our hearts are turned from God and given to someone else, something else. We commit adultery. Now, that should be um, strong enough language for us, but my fear is that it's not, because i um, my experience with people who commit adultery is they always have reasons why so um, they rationalize it by saying well she was cold um, she was bitter she was a nag she was never encouraging she really forced me into the arms of this other woman Or he he never loved me. He never hugged me. He never cared for his family. All he did was work. This guy gets me. This guy loves me. This guy cares for me. I I had to do this. Or um, I, I was just one time. I was drunk. I was with the guys. It was stupid. It's no big deal, right? So when we are the adulterer, we tend to have excuses for it. When we are cheated on, there tend to be no excuses, I've yet to meet a couple um, that were dealing with adultery where the spouse that was cheated on rationalized the cheater. They experience the brokenness. They experience the emptiness. They experience the pain. They experience the bitterness. They experience the loss and the betrayal. And they are left alone to consider questions like why? Why did this happen? Why would he do this? Why would, why would he leave me and the, and the children after all this time? Why, after 10 years, would she run out on us? What could I have done differently? What could I have done better? How did I cause this? I, I think when we put ourselves in the position of the one um, being cheated on, it, it's a little bit more visceral. It's a little bit more experiential. I think we get it at a different level. And this is what God says. Because this isn't just a, a, an issue of like, hey God, I disagree with your position on this and I'm going to go with this guy's opinion. Um, th- this is a, a turning of our heart and inclining our heart to someone else. Now, it, it gets worse because if you think about it, um, the person that we are inclining our hearts to is, is God's mortal enemy. The angel who rebelled And is working to destroy God and all of God's creation. So um, this isn't just you getting cheated on. It's you getting cheated on. Your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend cheats on you with like your arch enemy. Right? We we don't talk about arch enemies a lot. I think we've lost that in our culture a little bit. Um, I think maybe we should bring it back. Um, But but think about this is is the girl who beat you out for prom queen. Um, This is the guy who is the captain of the football team and you're on the bench, right? And so um, this is the person you hate the most. Now add on top of that um, that that person who is sleeping with your spouse or significant other doesn't actually love them but is actually just seeking to manipulate and destroy them and you and your relationship. And you know this. This isn't like your wife fell in love with another man who really wants to care for her and protect her. That's bad enough. But now your life, your wife has fallen for another man, your husband's fallen for another woman who doesn't care for him at all, just looks to destroy him, destroy you, destroy your marriage, family, relationship, all of it. Hearts inclined. So um, here's the deal. Christians um, are want to, and pastors maybe even more so than the general Christian, are often um, want to, Soft pedal sin. right? We, we, we don't really want to get to the harshness of shame and guilt and sin and wrath and conviction. But here's the deal I think we should feel shame when we've done something shameful. I, I, I think we should feel guilt when we are guilty. I think that that we should feel conviction when we've rebelled against God. I think we should be in fear of wrath when we deserve wrath. And and I just want that to lay on us for a minute. I I want us to feel the weight of that, the way the Scriptures intend for us to feel the weight of that. Not to dwell in it, not not to be defeated by it, but, but to know that um, sin matters. In fact, um, at the end of that James 4 passage, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Have you ever been in a situation where you and some friends were reminiscing on old times, maybe some crazy times, some rebellious times, and, and it's kind of funny and you're telling stories. and It's like, oh, man, remember when we did that? Dude, you were so drunk, right? Or remember, remember when we were in that deal and we just, we just took that guy for all he was worth? Ah, oh, that was so awesome, right? And we laugh and we joke and, and we, we have a good time with it. Um. That's what happens when we don't think sin's a big deal. But if sin is is couched in the context of adultery, I've never been in a situation where um, we've looked back on somebody getting cheated on and, and laughed about it. Remember when she ran around on you? That was so terrible. So um, th- this is a, a command for those um, who think sin's not that big a deal. Here's the other reason why we, we have to let this lay on us for a minute. We have to feel the weight of it. Um, because when our sin is little, God's grace is little. When our problem is small, the solution is small. When, when sin, when our trap is weak, our Savior is not strong. In order for us to ever understand grace, love, and mercy, which are the things we like, right? Um, In order for us to understand truly grace, love, and mercy, we have to understand sin, death, and wrath. We have to understand what we're up against. I mean, um, the very next words out of James' mouth is, uh, but he gives more grace, well, more than what? If, if we don't know how much sin there is, how can we know what more grace looks like? It's grace is relative to the sin. And so if we think sin is relatively minor, then we cannot sing things like amazing grace. It's like, well, if sin's just kind of this petty, stupid, oh, just we're foolish, we make two things, then the song should be like decent grace. Grace that's all right. Amazing grace means nothing. The depth of God's love means nothing. And ultimately, if sin is is little, if sin is weak, if sin is not worth mentioning, then the cross seems like a huge overreaction. Huge overreaction. The cross is a big deal and it needed to be because sin is a big deal. Okay, so we we learn it um, in light of adultery in the context of that loss of that betrayal know get I, I know this is heavy I, this is this is no way to grow a church i i assure you of this right um th- this is this is not the way we're supposed to do it but but we'll never get to grace we'll never get to a full understanding of grace unless we understand um, this now john is, is real specific the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes the pride and possessions i'm not going to unpack that i think we get that it's those moments throughout our lives when we see something we go oh i, I want that when we see someone we go ooh. I want that, right? So it, it's, it's, it's all of those. Little, in fact, you know going to be an, a really interesting experiment is to have a little pad of paper and a pen and go throughout your life and just for a week, maybe come next week, um, for a week, just when those moments come, when you see something, you go, oh, that's really cool. I like that. And y- y- you know the feeling. It's something, it's something in this region, typically, where, where you just kind of go, oh, it's excitement or it can be negative where you look at something and go, hey, wh- why does he have that and I don't? can be bitter it can be kind of angsty right like why does she get him she doesn't deserve him she's a uh, i'm a right so uh that there there's all these moments positive negative it would be really interesting um to have you just write those down and go i felt this when i saw that i responded this way um when i saw her or him doing this and, and at the end of the week you'd have this um, kind of desire uh, this diary of the evil desires of your heart Which sounds really depressing, actually, but um, it may be of some use for you to just reveal, like, what's in here. What what are what are those things that you just kind of flinch at, and you flinch negative, you flinch positive, but it's just it's what's it's those desires, it's those passions that are within you. Okay, now part three, verse six. God gives more grace. Therefore, it said, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. If we don't know our sin... We will never be moved to humble ourselves, to repent before God, to come before him and, and see us exalted. Okay? Go to 1 John 2.17. And we'll finish with this. He says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, um, this, John kind of baselines it here. He goes, You've got these two options. You've got the world and you've got God. The reality is, the world is temporal, the world is passing away. The reality is, God is eternal, God is forever, God is substantive. Um, Even these things that the world is teaching us today, think about this. The ethics of the world today were not the ethics 20 years ago. The things that seem so obviously true today, many of which were not true 20 years ago. Your, your parents grew up in a culture that was very different than yours. Where many of the things that we go, well, of course they can do that. Why wouldn't they be able to do that? Of course they can do this. Of course that's okay. Of course she, it's, it's her body. She can do whatever you want. Literally, one generation, one generation, those things were wrong and unthinkable. So, not, not only is this just the pattern of the world and a, and a construct of Satan, it's constantly changing. There cannot be ultimate truth in something that flip-flops its mind, changes its mind every 50 years or so. There's nothing, there's nothing constant. There's nothing substantive there. The things that are obviously good today were not obviously good a generation ago. The things that are obviously bad today were not obviously bad a generation ago. Something's not true about that. That is no foundation from which to launch a life How can you define ethics on something that changes its mind that rapidly? At some point, you just have to throw out any idea of actual constant truth, which many people have done. Okay. So John makes the point that the world is passing away. It's temporal. It's changing its mind all the time. That that God is eternal. That God is lasting. Many of us think about God simply in terms of the negative. So um, we we think about him. We we tend to we tend to extremes. We, I, I think we get this. Um, some of us only think about God as as positive. We say things like, "Oh, God is love. How could he?" Right? And there's all kinds of conclusions we make based on that. God is love, and that it's another sermon, but it's meaningless. Okay. Um, there's another half of us um, that go, God is wrath. God has consequences. God brings down you know, fire and brimstone on me. There is only bad. In other words, we think about God like we think about the police. Okay? Go with me on this. Love the police. Serve and protect. boy. But there is no more frightening moment in the universe than when you're driving down the street and a cop pulls in behind you. It's just like... 10 and 2, 10 and 2, 10 and 2, three miles under the, under the speed limit, right? Left hand turn a half a mile before my turn, right? And, and that's, it's just absolutely frightening, okay? And, and the greatest moment we can experience is when the cop goes around us, like, you will to do slow, right? And goes around us, or, or we turn and he doesn't follow, right? We get all paranoid, like, oh, I'm turning, right? I, okay, this happened to me yesterday, all right? So I'm, I'm driving up McClintock, cop's behind me, and I go, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, Turn, left. I mean, three lefts before I needed to turn, but I just had to, I don't know. I wasn't even doing anything. I don't know. This just guilt. Here's the thing. The best we can hope for from a police officer is that he ignores us. Right? I mean, when we're driving, we're going, just just don't take me to jail. Just don't take me to jail, right? Like, that's, and that's worst case. And then when he just drives around us and keeps going, we're like, Oh, thank the Lord. What we cannot expect is for the police to pull us over, um, knock on our window, and we roll it down. And he just goes, man, you are a good driver. (laughs) Man, I I wish everyone out here was as conscientious as you. Here are three get-out-of-jail-free cards. Be blessed, my son, right? Like, that never happens. That is an impossibility, okay? So we think of God that way a lot, where we think, well, God's wrath, God's on us, God hates us, and if we don't mess up, maybe he'll ignore us and he won't know I'm here. The reality is so much more than that. I'll say this. There is very little, there is nothing winsome about that God. No wonder our hearts never feel inclined towards that God. When the best we can hope for is that He will ignore us, we're thinking about God like an abusive father. We think about God like a drunk, abusive father. I'm just not going to say anything. Maybe He won't know I'm here. Maybe He'll ignore me. He won't hit me again. It never even occurs to us that God might actually be a loving Father. A Father who would would provide for us and care for us and bring us joy and satisfaction and happiness. That this choice of world or God is not just a, a choice of consequences or ignorance, but it's actually a choice of consequences or eternal satisfaction and joy. That idea never even occurs to us. Um, Blaise pascal is is one of the greatest thinkers um, just in human history let alone christian history i mean he wrote in um, in book seven of his book pensies this is a long quote i'm going to break it into three sections but it's really really good pascal says all men men and women all men seek happiness this is without exception whatever different means they employ they all tend to this end The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So let's stop there, because because Pascal makes the first point, and I want to make a second on top of it. He says, everybody all the time is seeking their own happiness. And that's true. No matter what it is we're doing, we are seeking our own happiness. For some of us, it manifests itself, as he says, going to war or not going to war. Some of us, it manifests itself as luxury and decadence, while others, it manifests itself in self-denial and service to others. But at the end of the day, it's seeking happiness. Now, let me add to that, that's okay. In fact, that's from God. Can I I just tell you that? This is two weeks in a row that I've treaded on like um, prosperity gospel water here, but um, let me just tell you that God wants you to be happy. This is news for some of you. This is news for some of you that have gone most of your life assuming God wants you sad, mad, or disappointed. God put in your soul a desire for satisfaction and happiness, fully expecting you to pursue that desire to its fullest ends. So, Pascal's right. Everyone seeks happiness all the time. And I'll just add to that, and that's okay. Now, he says this, and yet, after such a great number of years, no one without faith has reached the point to which all continually look, all complain. Princes and subjects, noblemen and commoners, old, young, strong, weak, learned, and ignorant, healthy, and sick of all countries, all time, all ages, and all conditions. A trial so long, so continuous, and so uniform should certainly convince us of our inability to reach the good by our own efforts. What is it then that this desire and this inability proclaim to us, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which there now remains to him only the mark and empty trace which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings. And Get this, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. In other words, all men seek happiness and those who, as he qualifies, are without faith. Seek and 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 never find. It doesn't matter who you are. Rich, poor, strong, weak, healthy, sick, princes, common people, doesn't matter. Everybody seeks and seeks and seeks and seeks, and they go, if I only had a million dollars, and they get it, and they go, if I only had 10, they get it, and they go, well, if I only had 100, a, a if I only had this wife, if I only had that husband, if I only had two wives, if I only had this life, if I only had that car and those cars, and they just seek and seek, expecting to find in what is absent what they have not found in what is present. A, an insatiable thirst for this happiness. and They don't find it. So what happens is, one of two things, they just seek and seek and seek and seek and seek until they die, or they talk themselves into the the fact that some kind of low level crappiness um, is the greatest that they will ever be able to experience. And so they just kind of lower their sights and go, well, I, I think I was just being idealistic as a young child. I think the, the happiness that my soul craves is not actually realistic. And so I'm just going to kind of downgrade my expectations and just be cool with this. But when we're honest with ourselves, we, we still have a soul that longs for happiness. He finishes here. He says, but these are all inadequate Because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. Only the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Christians is a God of love and of comfort, a God who fills the soul and the heart of those whom he possesses, a God who makes them conscious of their inward wretchedness and his infinite mercy who unites himself to their inmost soul, who fills it with humility and joy, with confidence and love, who renders them incapable of any other end than himself. Jesus Christ is the end of all and the center to which all tends. So what's our problem? It, it's not that we want to be happy. Our problem is that our not that our desires want some other end. It's... It's that we don't seek enough, that, that we settle for these things. Now, all week, I have tried and tried and tried to put together this sermon without using my favorite C.S. Lewis quote that I've literally used 4,000 times here at the church, but I, I just can't do it. So I've got to repeat it from memory, because I didn't write it down so that I wouldn't use it, but I'm going to use it anyway, because I've used it so many times, I can repeat it mostly from memory. <laughs> he says... He says, in, in light of God's unblushing promises in the Gospels, in, in light of the promised rewards, the blessings of life with God, he says, it seems that God des- finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, we fool about with, with, with foolish things like ambition and sex and money and love, and, and we f- try to find our satisfaction in that. He, he calls us half-hearted creatures, He goes, it's like, and he uses this great illustration, he goes, it's like a child who turns down a holiday at the sea, a vacation at the ocean, for those non-English speakers, to play with mud pies in a slum. He goes, all of our desires, all of this worldly desire, all the ambition and the sex and the position and the money and and all of that, he goes, it's fine, but but it's a half-hearted pursuit it's a crappy ideal. He goes, don't, don't stop, don't, don't try to be all about self-denial and it's not about my happiness. He goes, that's not what God wants for you. God wants you to seek happiness, but to seek it better than you are now. Stop fooling about with this foolish, stupid, shallow, petty stuff that will never satisfy you. You'll find it, you'll you'll have sex, and you'll want more. And you'll have sex, and you'll want more. And you'll get money, and you'll want more. And you'll get money, and you'll want more. And you'll get a great job, and you'll want a better one. It will never satisfy. Not even the blessings of God will satisfy. Pascal says, only one eternal and immutable object can fill the eternal void in our soul. The thing that God put in our soul, this desire for satisfaction, this desire for happiness, God divinely put that in your soul so that you would spend your life seeking the satisfaction of it, knowing that the only true satisfaction of it is God himself. So he goes, don't stop seeking happiness. Seek harder. Seek better. Raise your sights. Expect more. There's a bunch of crappy stuff around this world that that begs for your attention and promises happiness. That that is advertising. That is marketing. That's all marketing is. It's crappy promises of crappy products. So if you're studying marketing, (laughs) you're jacked. You, You are selling products that will never satisfy ultimately. God alone can satisfy. God alone provides comfort, joy, satisfaction, love, intimacy. That's the promise. So as, as we go back to these questions in our lives, and we're facing down all of these questions moment after moment, tens of thousands of times, every day, we answer these questions in light of the gospel. And so we, we come and we stand before our closet and we go, okay, what am I going to wear? And we, we start to ask questions. Okay, so if 95% of our questions are answered, before we ever get to the question, we do so many things unthinking, it's because we are so shaped by the influences we allow to be in our world. So if we are not waking up every morning and reading our Bible, spending time in prayer, if we're not here in church week after week after week, if we're not in community being encouraged and sharpened by other Christians, we are being influenced by something else. Something else is shaping that 95%. Therefore, something else is shaping 95% of the decisions that you make just like this. So we have to first and foremost root ourselves, anchor our souls to what is true so that more and more and more of that 95%, those decisions we make like this, are rooted in the gospel and we just respond because we have inclined our hearts towards God so fully and so completely that it just comes out. But then that other 5%. Those decisions that we have to make, um, all of all of those questions I listed and the, and the millions more. Um, let me let me just let me just tell you something. I don't think I'm supposed to tell you as a pastor. Those answers aren't in here. They're not in here. This 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 does not say which movies you can watch and which movies you cannot watch. This movie didn't. This book does not say um, you should wear um, the pink top with the tight jeans, guys. <laughs> this, this book doesn't give you specific answers. It gives you ideas. It gives you big themes. It gives you, it gives you big thoughts about modesty. Gives you big thoughts about how, how do we glorify God in whatever we say, whatever we do, whatever we eat, whatever we drink, how do we glorify God? It gives us ideas like character and integrity and honesty. Okay, and it forces you to do the hard work of thinking, the hard work of actually processing and going, okay, here's the decision I have to make. First, I want to submit it to the scriptures and 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 think through what are the big ideas that God, these overarching themes from under which I can make this decision. And then when the decision becomes clear and obvious, then actually submitting to that decision and doing it. That's oftentimes the hardest part. We can kind of discern, yeah, I think God wants me to do this. I kind of want to do that. Um, And then submitting to what God wants to do. It goes back to last week. Do you believe in a God who can tell you no? Right? If you want to do this and God says that, who wins? Okay, so um, after we do that, after we submit it to the word, after we submit to the answer from the word... Then we do it, and we bear fruit. And we go, oh my gosh, when I chose God's way, when, when my desire for God won out over my desire for the world, guess what happened? It went well. I, I had peace in that relationship. It, it, I, I had success and satisfaction and joy and comfort, all the things that God promises. It was really weird. And, and you know what? Next time when I, when I chose the world, you know what? It ended hard and really bad and broken and... and dark. Oh, that's weird. And, and maybe we write that stuff down so we remember it. Maybe we do journal. Maybe we do keep records. So we go, the next time I face this question I go, you know what? Last time I chose God's way and ended really, really good. I'm going to do that again. And we follow those passions. Being true to our first love. Being true to the spouse we've covenanted with. Believing that God's way is good. The way of the world leads to destruction. That's Christian life. Doing it over and over and over and over and over. That's a Christian life. That's the really simple simple answer. It's actually thinking through that stuff. Actually processing it. And then submitting to the answer and living it out. And seeing that it actually works. That you will actually find happiness in the only one who can bring you happiness. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would convince our hearts uh, that what we've heard tonight is true. Lord, I I pray that um, you would would convince us that um, you really do love us, that you really are for us, that you want us to, to be happy, to be satisfied, to experience joy and comfort and love. Lord, I, I, I believe, I think, that, that if our hearts are convinced of that, first and foremost, that you're good, that you're powerful, that you're trustworthy, and you want our best, that we are far more prone to believe you, to trust you, and to follow you. So Lord, I, I pray that for us, that those truths would, would be rooted deeply in our hearts. They would become so part of the fabric of of the way we think and feel and act that those 95% of of the decisions that we make so easy would would reflect a belief in the gospel because our hearts are so saturated with it. Lord, those 5%, the ones we really process and think about, God, I pray that we would process them through the grid of the gospel. What is most glorifying to you and most satisfying to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.